What's your name, dude? Uh, Mart. Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> what kind of stupid name is that? Faith, it's been said that jazz and the Western are the art forms that America has given the world. The star of tonight's films is proficient in both. When one speaks of the Western film, two names invariably pop up. John Wayne and the man we're talking about tonight. He first found fame on the television Western Rawhide, portraying cattle driver Rowdy Yates. He then went to Italy and made three classic spaghetti westerns with one of his mentors, Sergio Leone. Those films made him a movie star. He made several films, including Dirty Harry, with his other mentor, Don Siegel. He even cast Siegel in his first directorial effort, Play Misty for Me. Here are just a few of the titles in his filmography. The Good, The Bad and the Ugly, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Every Which Way But Loose, Unforgiven, Million Dollar Baby, Gran Torino. He's been nominated for 11 Oscars and has won four. At the time of this recording, he is 90 years old and he's just a few weeks from making 91 and he shows no signs of stopping. He has a new film that he is both starring in and directing being released later this year. He also loves jazz and plays the piano. That's him you're listening to right now. You know him. You love him. You've probably done an impression of him at some point in your life. Who are we talking about tonight, Faith? Clint Eastwood. Welcome to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. I am Dan, and with me, as always, is my High Plains Drifting co-host, Faith. Say hi, Faith. Hi, Faith. Have you ever done a Clint Eastwood impression? I don't know if I have. Maybe later. (laughs) You're probably thinking to yourself, why is a horror show spotlighting Clint Eastwood? Well, Mr. Eastwood made his film debut in a Universal Monster movie, 1955's Revenge of the Creature, a sequel to the classic Creature from the Black Lagoon. He's also the man that directed the proto-slasher film Play Misty for Me. That's one of your favorites, isn't it, Faith? Yes, it is. Tonight's films, while not out-and-out horror films, each have a supernatural bent to them. And really, who doesn't love a good ghost story? What's up first, Faith? First up, we have 1973's High Plains Drifter, a movie that finds Clint's man with no-name character drifting into the town of Lago and turning it into hell. Literally, and figuratively. Something really bad happened in Lago, and Clint is bringing his guns, his squint, and a little Old Testament wrath of God with him in this tale of karmic retribution and a whole hell of a lot of red paint. This Sergio Leone-inspired film was Clint's second time in the director's chair in the first Western he directed. The script is by Ernest Tidyman, an Oscar winner for his adaptation of The French Connection, one of the great films to come out of the 70s. And he's also the man who created the character of John Schaff, the black private dick that's a sex machine with all the chicks in the 1970 novel Shaft. The supporting cast includes Verna Bloom, most famous for her role as Mrs. Wormer in the 1978 John Landis comedy Animal House. We like that one here on the show, don't we, Faith? We sure do. Mariana Hill, best remembered today for her role in 1974's The Godfather Part II as Fredo Corleone's wife, Deanna. Billy Curtis as Mordecai, a friendly dwarf sympathetic to Eastwood's character. Curtis appeared as a munchkin in 1939's The Wizard of Oz and also appeared as the hero in 1938's Terror in Tiny Town, which is, as of the date of this recording, the only Western ever made with an all-midget cast. 
Familiar faces rounding out the cast include Mitchell Ryan, who worked with Eastwood on Magnum Force, the first Dirty Harry sequel, and is recognizable for his work in 1987's Lethal Weapon and television's Dharma and Greg, as well as Jeffrey Lewis, appearing here for the first of several appearances he would make with Eastwood. Released on August 22, 1973, High Plains Drifter received positive reviews from both critics and audiences alike and was one of the top money-making westerns of the 1970s. It also features an excellent and eerie score by D. Barton. That was a lot of information, so let's take a deep breath. Ah, and Faith, what is our second film this evening? Next up, we have 1985's Pell Rider. We have another variation on the man with no name, even though this time he goes by the moniker Preacher. Set during the California Gold Rush, Eastwood's Preacher answers the prayers of young Megan Wheeler, played by Sidney Penny, when he rides into town and writes some wrongs. While there is some ambig- ambiguity excuse me, as to whether or not Eastwood's High Plains Drifter character is a spirit, Clint is on record as saying the Preacher is indeed a ghost. Ooh. Released on June 26, 1985, Pale Rider was a critical and commercial hit, became one of the highest grossing films of 1985, and was the highest grossing western of the 1980s. Pale Rider's cast features Michael Moriarty, familiar to horror audiences for his roles in 1983's Q, The Winged Serpent, 1985's The Stuff, both from director Larry Cohen, and 1986's Trolls. The late Carrie Snodgrass, an Oscar nominee for the 1970 film Diary of a Mad Housewife. She also appeared in a first season episode of The X-Files. Richard Dysart, another familiar face for his role as Dr. Copper in John Carpenter's classic 1982 film, The Thing. He's joined in villainy by Charles Hallahan, his Thing co-star, he played Norris. And the late Chris Penn, best remembered for his roles in Footloose and Reservoir Dogs. In addition to the aforementioned Sidney Penny, we have John Russell as Marshall Stockbarn. He previously appeared with Eastwood in the classic Outlaw Josie Wales. And we also have Richard Keel, most famous for his role as Jaws in the James Bond films The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. We also have another excellent score courtesy of longtime Eastwood collaborator Lenny Nihas. That was a, another bit of long information, so let's take a deep breath. Uh, we know that was a lot of info, but we figured we'd get it get it out here so we can get to talking about the movies talking about movies is fun it's even more fun to talk about them with a friend we are glad all of you are here with us be you a spook specter or ghostly cowpoke riding the range we're going to take a short break so pour yourself a cup of coffee put your feet up and get ready to howl at the prairie moon because high plains drifter and pale rider are up tonight I am Dan. And I am Faith. You are listening to The Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. We're so glad you're here. We'll see you on the other side. It's 12.01, the witching hour. You're listening to WKMF, Cozy Corner Public Radio. You are cleared for departure. Your destination, the late night fright. Commencing transmission in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. (laughs) 
This week on CBS Late Night, a young girl's life hangs in the balance on T.J. Hooker. It's the 22nd century. That dink is my property. And women rule the world in planet Earth. Cops versus the mob. I'll turn them over to you. One piece at a time. Night Heat. A father and son camping trip ends in disaster for George C. Scott in Rage. All this week on CBS Late Night. Welcome back to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. That was the theme from the TV show Rawhide being done by the Blues Brothers Band. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool, Sounds isn't really it? really good, yes. It really does, doesn't <laughs> it? Faith, do you like Westerns? For what I've seen of them, yes, I do. Okay. So how familiar are you with the genre? I wouldn't say I've seen all of them, but I've seen a I've seen a few. And seen a few. Yeah. Okay. I grew up watching westerns, not only western movies. I'm of the age. I was talking about this with my mother the other day. By the way, uh, this is coming out a day after mm-hmm. Mother's Day. We hope you and uh, all of all, if you're a mother, Happy Mother's Day. Yes. If you've got a mother, please. If you didn't, make sure to wish them Treat Happy Mother's Day. Treat her right every as day. The song, as the song goes. <laughs> Uh, I grew up, I was part of the last generation, very lucky in this respect, that we got older television. So when I was growing up in the early to mid-80s, things like Rawhide would be on TV, The Lone Ranger was on TV, uh, Gene Autry was on TV. So I also saw the TV shows in addition to the Westerns, and my mom is a huge fan of John Wayne, (laughs) loves Clint Eastwood too, but really loves John Wayne. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen the movie Rio Bravo, which is legitimately regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, Quentin Tarantino cites it, I think, as one of his two favorite movies. So they've always been around Mm -hmm. with me. I've always had a a real healthy appreciation for the genre in all of its forms. The thing I like about the Western is it tells us where we were. Mm-hmm. It also tells us where we are. Because that the Western, a lot like science fiction, can tell you mm-hmm. where you are societally. Right. You know, yeah. depending on when it's made. You can go back and you can look at uh, things. Clint Eastwood's Westerns are really good at that. <laughs> also kind of give you an idea of maybe where we're going, too. Exactly. You know, so a lot of science fiction and the Western do have a lot of similarities yeah. between them. I love the Western um, too. Like I said, I, I've, I've probably seen more than I can. I don't know the names of things. My dad always had them on, so I've probably mm-hmm. seen a good bit, but I'm not one to be able to probably pinpoint what the name of and that's the specific fine. movie that's was. Fine. But I feel like Westerns, too, kind of, they do their thing. They don't try to be something else. Right. You know, I feel like they just... Right. They they do what they're supposed to do, and, and they're entertaining. The horror genre and the Western are really my two favorite genres. I think they're... I love the stylized nature mm-hmm. of both of them. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. The Western, 
I do feel uh, is a little more malleable. Use a big word there. I think you can do a lot of things with the Western. You can right. do the straight kind of good guy, bad guy thing. Mm-hmm. You can do a more kind of allegory. You can do operatic things with the Western. You can do these things with the <laughs> horror film. But the Western really does open itself up for, for a lot of different, you know, uh, right. iterations. Yeah. We're going to see that tonight with these two films. We got a lot of similarities, some differences between mm-hmm. these two films. I said something in the introduction. I said that when you mentioned Westerns, there really are two names that pop into your head. Into your head. <laughs> John Wayne yeah, yeah. and Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? I agree. Yeah. That's the two the two guys. Yeah. Two guys. This really is the American art form. This mm-hmm. and jazz, as I said. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's really interesting that he's proficient in, in both. both. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little more well known for the Western, but uh, he, he's a hell of a good uh, uh, pianist and composer in his own right. He was good enough to go professional back in the day, but his standard was too high. He wanted to be Charlie Parker, and not a lot of people are Charlie Parker. On, on some days, Charlie Parker wasn't Charlie Parker, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, he didn't think he was good enough. And and I've heard it said from guys in the know that he was indeed good enough if he w- had wanted to become a studio pianist or even an artist in his own right so but i think i think we we got it right i think he needed to to do go on the journey that he's been on i think so too (laughs) so you like the western Mm -hmm. do you like clint eastwood i love clint eastwood so do i so do i let's talk about his career trajectory here because this is really interesting we're going back uh into the 50s and the way that things used to be set up with the studio system, they'd have these people under contract, these contract players. So if you had like a Warner Brothers movie, if you watch that, you're going to see, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and even in like the 50s, and you're going to see all the same people in those movies. They had their stock players. Same for Universal, Warner Brothers, uh, RKO, any, they had their, their players that would be under contract. Occasionally they would get lent out, you know, to another studio. But uh, so he comes in on the tail end of that system. He's under contract at Universal. Legend has it he got let go on the same day as Burt Reynolds. They walked out to their cars together and were basically (laughs) told they would never amount to anything. Oh, wow. All right. So he's there on the on the end of the contract thing. Mm -hmm. Then he goes into this new medium called television, still relatively new. He becomes a television star with Rawhide. Okay, Rawhide lasts seven or eight years. Okay, not a lot of people were making the jump from television to movies. He did. He did. He's probably the most successful guy (laughs) to make the jump from television to movies. Probably so. But he has to go to Italy to do it. So he goes to Italy, and he he comes under the direction of Sergio Leone, who makes uh, for a fistful of dollars, for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the quintessential, the holy trilogy of spaghetti westerns. Okay, Mm -hmm. so he becomes a major movie star. He comes back here, hooks up with Don Siegel, and then finally tries his hand at directing a little while later. It becomes this cultural icon. All right. So starts directing. Now he's about to release his first movie via a streaming service. So in a weird way, he's back on television. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of weird. It, he's back on television. I was thinking about that, the way that this wheel has mm-hmm. gone around. And the fact that he has seen it all from contract player, the way it used to be way back in the day. And now he's on streaming and, and everything in between. And I, I'm bringing that up because it's a piece of history, first off. Yeah. And the other thing is, 
I don't know that we've ever seen anyone stick around for as long as he stuck around. Right. I was just thinking that too. You know, not only physically with us, you know, like, like he still is, which is great to see him still. Yeah. But through that, through the change of how things are made, you know, and how they come out and yeah. Yeah. And it's not only that he's still with us physically and and I'm thankful for that. And I think, uh, I think if if we're all still here in 10 years, if the world hasn't gone just straight to hell, I think we're going to be here celebrating his 101st. So, but he's still relevant too. That's amazing. He, it it's it's amazing. And if any of that, uh, what I just talked about, the contract player and then TV star and a TV star trying to become a film star, but going to Italy to do that, if that sounds a little bit familiar, like Rick Dalton from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the character played by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, that was on purpose. That was on purpose. Quentin yep. Quentin knows what he's what he's talking about with this. Uh, that character was not based on Eastwood, but he's one of the guys that kind of you know is in that DNA. Mm-hmm. Some of it. So let's get into it, Clint Eastwood. What is it? What is it about this guy? He's been around uh, for the entirety of both of our lives. Yeah. And uh, you know, you were familiar with him. Uh, I'm oh, sure God, yeah. from from barely being able to walk like yes. I was. Right. Yes. What is it about him? You know, I think what gets it for me and. I think I've said this with some of our big horror guys like Christopher Lee and and Cushing. He's such a man that has presence on screen. Even if he's not even speaking, there's just this, I don't know, there's just something about him that just attracts you to him to just, just watch him. He pulls you in and it's just so incredible to watch him. And I feel like even people who may not have seen most of his movies or any of his movies, they know who he is. You know, it's yeah. just so cool. It's a, it's a, it's a very unique presence in the yeah. history of film. I, I believe I said this in the play Misty for me episode, but I'm going to say it again. And and let me say this, uh, shameless plug for our back catalog. All of those episodes are available wherever you find your <laughs> podcast. We, we've gotten quite a few nice notices for the play Misty for me episode recently. And thank you all out there for that. Mm-hmm. And it's one of our top episodes. And it's really amazing to me that it is one of our top episodes, considering some of the great name horror films that right. we've talked about and some of the kind of cult movies that we've talked about. But mm-hmm. uh, it's really flattering that that's one that, that people have kind of latched on to. And we really, uh, that movie, when we did it back in first part of 2020 really kind of helped me rediscover and get back in touch with Eastwood, mm-hmm. the, the artist that is. And uh, it's a really interesting film. It is. And it's just, it's one that's really honestly stuck with me because it's just, it's so good for being his first movie that he directed. Right. It's just like, wow, okay. And like I said, it's stuck with me for some reason. The, the thing that I said in that episode, and I'll repeat here, is he's a very unique presence in that he is looked at as the epitome of masculinity mm-hmm. by many people. Right. Rightfully so, right. I think. And a lot of his movies comment on masculinity. That's another, he's, he's, there's so many facets to this guy. I Faith's know. laughing because she, she's like, because she knows. But uh, I made the point in that episode that he actually has a lot of feminine qualities. If you watch him on screen, he's actually actively listening. It's mm-hmm. it's there are a lot of what we assign to, you know, the female right. of the species. We talked about this with Fox Mulder, though, too, the way that those the, the roles are kind of swamped mm-hmm. where. But Eastwood, watch him, watch him in a scene. He's not just there taking up space. He's the dude is actively listening and 
I have a note here that no actor for my money serious. And I'm serious about this outside of Nicolas Cage ever seems like there is in the moment Mm -hmm. as Clint Eastwood. Now they're in the moment in different ways, but, but, uh, uh, Eastwood is always, he's always just so there, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's actively listening. And the other thing that I think people respond to with him is he seems completely unpretentious. His movies are unpretentious and people don't like being lectured to or talked down to or or at least feeling like they're being talked down to Mm -hmm. or lectured at. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't like that. (laughs) What do you think about the whole feminine thing? It's, it's, it's very interesting to like, maybe that's why it stuck with me in that way, because you're so used to seeing him in these roles that, like you said, are so masculine and to see him kind of step back he, and he kind listens. of be soft and yeah. just, and he is soft. That's the is. thing. Very and, soft. and it's not that he's playing the, the female role or taking right. that place, but he can, he can pull back and just be on this whole other level. And it's kind of amazing to watch, you know, cause it's, it, and it's, it's over his entire career, which is amazing because a guy who, who maybe wants say a lot on screen, isn't you know and mm-hmm. you're watching him and you know that he there's something going on with him it's amazing exactly it's yeah. amazing so we talked about Nicolas Cage now we did Nicolas Cage last week on the show we did Willie's Wonderland shameless plug again check out that episode I really liked that movie I liked Me too. <laughs> that episode but there's an interesting Nicolas Cage Clint Eastwood DC Comics connection that I want to bring up here so Nicolas Cage famously Almost played Superman. There's videos out there. You can watch him in a costume fitting for both Clark Kent and for uh, Superman. Uh, and we're still actively depressed that it did not happen. It's every day. <laughs> like every day. <laughs> it's every day. It's every day I'm, I'm upset. I actually, and I know we're being funny here. I actually am upset that we I didn't re- no, get I the really Nicolas Cage Superman movie. So Eastwood also almost got involved with DC Comics very early in his career. Uh, he almost played Two-Face on the Adam West TV show. And I believe if the deal wasn't signed in in at least handshake, because he was friends with Adam West, was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come on the show. Yeah. And they were having to play Two-Face, and he was going to get injured. He was going to be a TV news reporter, get injured, and uh, half of his face was going to get messed up. And they thought it would be too scary for kids. And I, and I part of me... Part of me can see that, I guess. Yeah, but wouldn't that have been something? <laughs> wouldn't that have been something? Yeah. And the thing is, like, that would not have been a guy going, you know, his career is in a bad place. No, people, big people were going on that Batman TV show. Big people were going on there. And uh, the other one that we almost got was Eastwood in a film adaptation as older Batman in Frank Miller's 1986, The Dark Knight Returns, which is one of the quintessential Batman stories. And I had heard that for years and years that he was interested in it at one point. And and it kind of almost happened too from between Keaton and Christian Bale, I think is Mm -hmm. where that kind of would have happened, you know, like late nineties, early aughts before Batman begins. I would have loved to have seen him play Two-Face. I would have loved to have seen him play older Batman. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I really I mean, would have loved to have seen that. That would have been just amazing. Miller, I'm not intimately familiar with comic books. Some I am, but uh, The Dark Knight Returns, I like it. I'm not you know, a super fan of that. I like elements of it. But uh, he may have actually written it as Clint Eastwood, now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, 
that may have been scary too. I know. So I think we were denied. I think we were denied. We really were denied yeah. on all accounts. I'd like to also offer a side note. I think Nicolas Cage should play Two-Face. I agree. I think he'd be a wonderful Two-Face. Oh, he, he absolutely would. All right, let's get to the <laughs> movies tonight. High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider. The films open the same way. They close the same way. It's shot reversals of Eastwood riding in. We've got similar themes of karmic retribution, the man with no name who may or may not be a ghost, writing wrongs. It's about the long and short of it, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Also, it feels like elements of these pictures, these stories, could have been adapted in the Twilight Zone episodes. What do you think of that? I could totally see that. Right, especially High Plains Drifter, but even (laughs) elements of Pale Rider you could have seen as a a Twilight Zone episode. And I'd like to say that I have been watching the Twilight Zone every day on MeTV, and Rod Serling, of course, uh, the wonderful Rod Serling, <laughs> hosts that show. I was lucky enough to catch the William Shatner one recently where he's in the plane mm-hmm. with, the, with the gremlin on the wing. We actually did that, uh, did that here on the show. We did an Lots episode. of shameless plugs tonight. A lot of shameless plugs tonight. How dare you? <laughs> this is completely off topic. Rod Serling, uh, from the second season on, would appear on screen. What I love is he's always holding a cigarette, mm-hmm. okay, which you never see on television anymore, right? But right. he's holding the cigarette. <laughs> he never smokes the cigarette, <laughs> right? He never smokes the cigarette. And the cigarette is always in, in varying degrees of, uh, of, of length, you know? And, and it's, 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 I feel like it might be my destiny. It's my quest right now. I want to find where the shots are, are non-sequential, where they mess up in the continuity, because I, I keep my eye on the cigarette because I'm like, <laughs> is it going to be longer in like the next shot? You know, when they go out to like the to the wide shot. <laughs> but I love it. He's always sitting there with the cigarette. And to me, it's like, why? Why? You're not smoking it. Why do you have it? Is that like a country singer having to hold the guitar? You know, like right. not playing You're it. Right. playing it. Right. <laughs> I'm holding the cigarette because I'm nervous. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe he's holding it for nervous purposes. <laughs> it could be. could be. But there is a there's a, a wonderful sense in both of these movies of karmic justice right Uh like uh if you do good good things will happen to you if you do bad Bad well (laughs) not only bad things you're gonna feel the wrath Uh of god feel the wrath of god and i feel that this plays into eastwood's view of the world and i want to play a clip from uh one of my favorites of his the outlaw josie wales that i think is pertinent to this idea where we're talking about you know, vengeful wrath coming back because mm-hmm. I'm going to play this clip from outlaw Josie Wells. It's Clint and Will Sampson playing chief tin bears and they're laying out a path for life. And this is the good path. If you, if you do good things, good things will happen. And then uh, we'll talk about it after, after we play it. So here you go. This is Clint Eastwood and Will Sampson in 1976 is the outlaw Josie Wells. If you haven't seen this movie, get on that right now. We'll see you on the other side of this. be ten bears? I am ten bears. I'm Josie Wales. I have heard. You're the gray rider. You would not make peace with the blue coats. You may go in peace. I reckon not.
Had nowhere to go. And you will die. I came here to die with you. I'll live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. When all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. In governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true and that my word of life is then true. The bear lives here, the wolf, the antelope, the Comanche. And so will we. And we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring, when the grass turns green and the Comanche moves north, you can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche that will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? It's here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. These things you say we will have, we already have. That's true. I ain't promising you nothing extra. I'm just giving you life, and you're giving me life. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's said that governments are achieved by the double tongues. And there is iron in your words of death for all Comanche to see. And so there is iron in your words of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. The words of ten bearers carry the same iron of life and death. It is good that warriors such as we meet in the struggle of life or death. It shall be life. All right, there you go. Keep those ideas in your head as we talk tonight. <laughs> All right. Tonight, we're going to be scoring the films in just one category. Overall film in lieu of stars, we'll be awarding them Clint Squints. <laughs> it's about right. It's perfect. It's perfect, right? <laughs> All right, our first film is 1973's High Plains Drifter, the town of Lago. Something really bad happened. Some people killed a marshal. Some other people just stood around and watched it happen. They let it happen. And this this guy, this, this High Plains Drifter, this guy with no name, comes into town, turns their world upside down, writes the wrong, and then he goes off. He may or may not be a ghost. That's the... Uh, that's the long and short of it, right? That's it. This was written by Ernest Tidyman, the Oscar winner for The French Connection and also the creator of Shaft. And Eastwood was intrigued by this by a nine-page treatment he read while at Universal Studios and thought it might uh, make a very good movie. So we just heard something really strange here in the studio. What was that? Was it a car? Maybe. 
We'll we'll see. It's like a weird howl. <laughs> might have been the high plains drifter. You never fate. know what goes on. In might have been corner. the high plains drifter. <laughs> it might have been. So there you go. That's the long and short of the film. Faith, what did you think of High Plains Drifter? I really like this movie. It was actually a lot weirder than I intended it to be, and I mean weird in the best way possible. It's this. It does feel like a Twilight Zone episode. Really, it's like this weird fever dream or something happening in this I love movie. it, fever dream. <laughs> and I love that like you it. said weird because <laughs> when I was a kid and was getting interested in Clint Eastwood movies because, as I said, you, you know who he is as a kid, mm-hmm. especially the time I was growing up. You know who he is, and he's still making movies and relevant. But you go into the video store and you're seeing these movies. I remember High Plains Drifter was a box I saw at the video store. I remember asking my father in particular. I was like, it's like what's High Plains Drifter? And he went, oh, that's weird. <laughs> My uncle, for years, oh, it's weird. My mother even goes, she goes, oh, that's the weird one. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people think it's weird. (laughs) It's just weird in a sense that it kind of, I don't know, it's this Western that kind of drifts into this, what's a good word? Strange allegory? Yeah, and it works. It's kind of almost Twin Peaks, the Western. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's like if Twin Peaks and Twilight Zone had a baby, it would be High Plains Drifter. And it just works, and it's just... I don't know. It's so good. It, it it really is. And it feels like if you know anything about his work with Sergio Leone, it feels like a real natural mm-hmm. kind of extension uh, from uh, that character, the man with no name, you know, from uh, the Dollars trilogy. And it just, I mean, the score really helps with it. And it's got an extreme mean-spiritedness yes. to it. And I actually really love that about the too. movie. <laughs> I feel like the whole thing, and I was, so this actually hit me. I did not know that there was a genre called Weird West. Mm, I which, did not know that either. Where basically the conceit is, and listen, if for any of you out there who are familiar with this and know more about it than I do, which I'm not, I, I just learned about this. It's basically where you take the Western and you mash it with something else. Okay. Okay. So here you have like a ghost story mm-hmm. and you're mashing it with the Western. You get High Plains Drifter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're even saying one of our old favorites, Trimmers, is really kind of under the, the weird West moniker. So one of the thoughts I had when I was thinking about the themes of this movie, I was thinking, is, is it kind of like H.P. Lovecraft with the cosmic horror where you're you know, the, the man isolated, you know, and is feeling the weight of existence and, mm-hmm. and, and those kind of things, you know, and the weight of, of existentialism. <laughs> and I looked up the tenets of, uh, of the Lovecraft theory, you know, of cosmic horror. And it was, it was like, it, it's kind of there, but it's not quite, <laughs> not quite. you know, yeah. like I don't think you'd win the argument, you know, but that's then what led me to the Weird West. And I went, well, I'll buy that, you know, for for a dollar fifty. But really, I mean, for me, it kind of comes, it's almost like its own genre of like karmic retribution. Because yeah. I feel like the people in this movie, the townspeople, and if you know your Western history, it's it's almost a variation on high noon, high noon. Uh, where no one wanted to go help the marshal. So, yeah, and, and here they killed this marshal played by Buddy Van Horn, who was Eastwood's stunt double and looks enough like him where you're kind of wondering, is that marshal that they killed the drifter, the, the spirit of mm-hmm. the of the drifter coming in? 
Uh, the original conceit was that he was the brother of the marshal, and Eastwood wanted to leave it ambiguous. I'm glad he did. I like it better ambiguous. Yeah, um, but I feel like the people in this town of Lago kind of get what's coming to them. You know, I mean, they right. sat there and let this guy die. They did nothing. These three outlaws, they just they just let him die. So um, after this movie came out, Eastwood wrote John Wayne famously and said they should do a movie together because the two names in the Western, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, <laughs> John Wayne said not no, but hell no. He hated this movie because he said that uh, this is not how people act this is not america this is not this is not the west <laughs> and clint was just like all right okay you know but uh so my question is is this john wayne has his view where everything's kind of honky dory you know uh, although he did make the searchers which is an interesting picture a really great movie and asked some really big questions but um uh, do you think this is maybe a little more realistic even though it's an allegory Possibly. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> because this actually was inspired by a New York Times account about the murder of a woman named Kitty Genovese in Queens. And they and now the New York Times reported that thirty some odd people stood around as she would kill as she was killed. But it was later uh uh later it started to come out that some of their reporting was wrong and was concocted to keep the story going. Hmm. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Yeah. Imagine that the New York Times not right? being truthful. <laughs> hmm. I didn't say that they lied. I said they weren't truthful in case their lawyers are listening. <laughs> if you would like Clint Eastwood's take on the media in this country, just watch Richard Jewell. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was awful. That whole thing was awful. So uh, anyway, uh, what do you think about the whole situation? Do you feel like the people get what's coming to them? Oh, absolutely, I do. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the weirdness. They this guy comes into town. They uh, want to hire him to keep these three thugs out of the way, who they hired to kill the marshal in the first place. They're getting out of jail. They're coming, and they're going to hire this guy to get rid of them when they come in. And he just completely turns this town upside down. And I love the fact that it's not just a quick retribution of it'd be really easy for them to uh, you know get a bullet, you know, to the to the heart or to the head, right? You know, and them he put out of their misery no 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 he puts them through the ringer it's absolutely wonderful what he does and then they paint the town red and literally rename it hell, hell. <laughs> yeah it's 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 really it's really something uh what do you think of the cast i love the cast here especially uh mordecai i think mm -hmm. the the character of mordecai is a, is a really wonderful uh bit of weirdness in this movie so you mentioned there's a there's a midget western? Yeah, Terror in Tiny Town. Okay. I'm, I'm ashamed we haven't done it on the show yet. Right? <laughs> that might be one we need to do commentary, I mean, like I mean, not watch it and, right. and do I'm, commentary. I'm very intrigued, to yeah, say the least. As we, as we watch it. But I, I thought he was really wonderful. <laughs> and I, I love him as his sidekick. You know, he makes Mordecai the mayor and the sheriff. <laughs> Again, it, it, it goes to show, I played the Tin Bears clip. And I think that's relevant because when society, at least in Eastwood's you know, view, I believe, you know, and I, and I think of him as a real artist and an auteur, oh, yeah. as they like to say, uh, he does not think of himself as an intellectual. He said before that he, he doesn't think of himself like that, doesn't really like that term. I don't think he likes, quote unquote, intellectuals either. <laughs> there's, a, as I said, there's a real kind of populism to his movies. Um, the, the thing with Tin Bears, it. That's what society, how society to him, I think, should work. Men, 
not governments, men, you know, having their bond, uh, living together. And then you get this movie and this movie kind of shows his view on, on what happens when you step out of that line. Yep. I think. I think so too. So, uh, as I said, we have Buddy Van Horn as Marshall Jim Duncan. They look alike. Do you think the stranger is the spirit of Jim Duncan? I mean, I want to go there when I'm, you know, <laughs> personally. <laughs> I feel like it adds a little something to it, you know, kind of makes it that ghost story that, you know. I uh, I mean, do you, do you want to go there with it? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think... I think as weird and strange as this movie is that the only the only thing it can be is that he's a ghost. Right. Exactly. An avenging angel of death. Mm-hmm. We if if you if you know enough about his filmography in his in his movies, there like I keep saying, his view of society, and this I think falls in with that view of society that you're gonna get what's coming to you if if you act a bastard, which exactly. these people clearly have this coming to them. Mm-hmm. They they um, and that to, I love that it's that's what's bad to him too. They let it happen. That's the thing. They're guilty by association. They let it happen. They and they show it. They stand there watching this brutal whipping. I know. They they whip the guy to death, which is Ugh. awful. And then he damns him to hell with his last breath in true Con Nooney and Sing fashion. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he probably just couldn't remember the Moby Dick quotes to throw at him. But they 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 beat him to death, and it's just so awful. And, and again, like, I, I think that's his view of society is that, listen, if we all live together and let each other live and leave each other alone while working in symbiosis with one another, everything's going to be cool. We've said it on this show before. We really believe that the true nature of man is that we all want to live together and be cool and be happy, right. you know, and, and, and then you get these assholes that come in and, and, and then karmic retribution <laughs> comes down <laughs> on them. I don't know. Um, that seems to me, though, to be to be how he sees things. I would, I would think so. All right. So let's see if that holds up in the next movie, Pale Rider, another ghost movie. And, and we do know, according to Eastwood, that he is a ghost. What did you think of Pale Rider? Uh, qu- very quickly, Pale Rider takes place uh, during the California Gold Rush era, uh, the town of La Hood out in California, and in the uh, little area known as Carbon Creek. Some tin panners are out there. They've built their little world. They're, they're doing their thing. And uh, Coy LaHood, played by Richard Dysart, he wants that area. He wants to strip mine it. And he's doing everything he can to get those people who are not bothering anyone and have a legal claim on that land to get them out of there. And the bastards shoot Sidney Penny's dog at the beginning of this movie, which then she buries it, says a prayer over that grave. And the f- retribution, the avenging angel comes in, literally riding a pale horse <laughs> like the book of Revelation. Here he comes down out of the mountains through the snow with this music from Lenny Nehaus happening that sounds like something out of John Carpenter's The Thing. And he comes in and he ends up just right in the wrongs. So, yep. <laughs> right? Get a little karmic retribution, right? Yes. And only the people who have it coming get it mm-hmm. in this movie. What did you think of Pale Rider? I... Again, I love this movie. I feel like this one is a little less weird. I feel like this one kind of feels more like a straight-up Western for the most part. Very, It's a very loose remake in, in ways of another classic Western called Shane 
from the fifties, which was a, which is a wonderful picture. And, and it, these movies that I'm talking about tonight, these westerns, if you've never seen them, please go watch them because they're worth your time. They're really worth your time. And as I've said, the western tells us where we were. Well, where we were at the time they were made, too. Mm-hmm. Where we are at the time they're made, and then where, where we're, we're going. going. And yeah. just like sci-fi and and horror films, too. Um, Shane's really wonderful, and Pale Rider does uh, borrow uh, significantly okay. from Shane. Um, you nailed it, though. It 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 is more of a traditional western in that you do know who the good guys and the bad guys are. There's a delineation right. of who the good guys and the bad guys are. And I find this to be a kinder, gentler, high plane drifter. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, just just a little right. bit. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say he's, you know, too nice to some of them. But <laughs> no, he's not. he's not. I I absolutely adore this movie. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the best in his filmography. And it's one that uh, is not underrated at all. But it's one that when you look at the totality of the work, it's not, it, it's it kind of maybe won't get mentioned up higher because of some of the things that it's right. standing with but i think this is one of the finest oh, yeah. in his uh in his filmography i mean just from the intro that is a beautiful intro to that movie i mean the music yes, the is. scenery i wanted to live there <laughs> we need to talk about the scenery in both movies because uh high plains drifter especially was a uh, filmed at mono lake in california and what i love did you read the story about how he scouted look at please yes. tell the story about how Clint i don't know if scout- i remember it word from word he went out by himself in a pickup truck That's and just right. drove, just just drove up the uh, Pacific Coast, and came to uh, this place, Mono Lake in California, and was like, "All right, this is it. That's it." <laughs> and uh, Pale Rider was filmed in Idaho, I believe. I think parts of California. In so Idaho. up up that yeah. kind of kind of getting in the Pacific Northwest area, mm-hmm. yeah, northern Northern California, Pacific Northwest, and. Uh, both of these movies look absolutely gorgeous. gorgeous. They're timeless, and I think they look so timeless because they're filmed out in actual nature. Mm-hmm. And right. <laughs> one thing I want to do before I leave this mortal plane is I want to get up to uh, South and North Dakota and up into that Pacific Northwest area, and I want to see some of what that frontier was because it just—it's absolutely gorgeous. Some of my favorite movies God, were filmed there. And uh, the look, and I'm, I'm like you, I wanted to go there. And what I love about the, the look of Pale Rider is you can actually feel the dirt. Mm-hmm. You can feel the snow. You can smell it. Yes. it and it, the, the wood in that movie, um, like all the hickory and things, like you can actually like smell the film. It's, and it's just because of the way that it, it was made. The other interesting thing about both of these movies is the towns that the movie takes place in, they were actually built. Mm-hmm. Like they actually built yes. like the buildings and they actually built them full. They're not just facades. Like they right. actually built full so he could get in there and film, you know, they put the camera in there. And I think it's absolutely lovely. And you get the best of craftspeople, mm-hmm. you know, here. And uh Yeah, was, I, I read that and I was like, I absolutely love that about it. it I feel like it just makes it so much more realistic. The and, studios tried to dissuade him from doing that, but yeah. he, he did it and, and he was right. He was absolutely oh, yeah. right. And uh the Pale Rider set may still be standing. The the High Plains Drifter, I believe, was burned after. It was, yeah, I read that. Okay, it yeah. And uh, some of the actors in High Plains Drifter actually did start painting that town red. So if you see, yeah, so it's really, <laughs> really pretty cool. But uh, uh, Pale Rider, again, uh, kind of the kinder, gentler High Plains Drifter <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, excellent, 
excellent cast in oh, this. Yes. If you have never seen Q, the Winged Serpent from 1983, Michael Moriarty is in that movie. He's most famous uh, for that in the stuff, but he was also in the first four seasons of Law and Order. He played the district attorney. Um, in Q, the Winged Serpent, he's doing a method performance. Like, we're talking like Marlon Brando, Heath Ledger in the Joker, you know, as the Joker mm-hmm. in the Dark Knight. And it's this cheap <laughs> B-movie horror thing. And he's doing this jazz piano player who's an addict or a recovered addict or something. And he knows where this winged serpent nest is, okay, as this thing's attacking New York City. And uh, his performance in that is so good. It's 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 amazing to watch. It's, and it's amazing that he's doing what he's doing in that movie, in that genre. Like, it's like, it's like, I'm going to go for it. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's really kind of cool. It's, it's really cool. Like right in the middle of this, just B movie, you know, <laughs> and he has some wonderful scenes with one of our favorites. Candy Clark plays his wife or girlfriend in that movie. I can't remember. Uh, and they so they have a lot of scenes together in that film. That's and cool. he is so good. I watched it one night on Shudder as part of the Joe Bob Briggs drive-in collection. And I started it at like 1130 at night. And I thought, oh, I'll watch a couple of minutes. And then I was like, you know, one o'clock rolls around. I'm like still <laughs> going with it. And he he was amazed. I couldn't keep my I eyes. I don't believe I've seen that. Oh, yeah. It's one of these like, it's really weird. Now. It's a cult. It's a cult movie. Yeah. And he's one of the reasons to see it, like because of this okay. performance that that is so so good. And the movies, movies, it's interesting. It's it's a it's a cheap B movie, okay. And it's got David Carradine in it. It's a lot of fun. It, it's amazing, like that he he did that in that movie, and Larry Cohen let him do it, which is amazing. <laughs> but if you haven't seen him in that, uh, definitely check him out. Now he's kind of the uh, the sidekick. He's kind of our, our emotional center in a lot of ways of this movie. He plays Hull Barrett, who is one of the tin panners in uh, Carbon Creek. And he first, he's the guy who brings Eastwood's preacher into, into the, the, the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did you think of Michael Moriarty's performance here? Because I, I think it's a really interesting performance. Well, how so? Uh, the, his, his intonation, uh, the way that he says things, that little that little accent that he's putting on some mm-hmm. things, and I don't feel like he's acting. That's the thing. I I never feel like the guy was acting. I, was I, gonna I, say. I feel like he's actually this guy, Hole Barrett. <laughs> you know, like like they found him wandering out somewhere, and they're I like was gonna say they put that. a camera yes. on him. Yeah, him and like kind of most of the cast, kind of honestly, and I I feel like I feel that way with Clint Eastwood a lot of the times too. I feel like. Whatever he's playing, that's who he is. Right. But I've definitely felt that way uh, from, what was his name, Michael? Michael yeah, Moriarty, I just, yeah. Yeah, I really, I really liked him. You, you felt for him at times. You know, oh, it's, it's, you a know, wonderful, it's, just, it's a wonderful performance uh, because he's playing the jilted romantic lead mm-hmm. in a lot of, well, not in a lot, he is, he's playing this yeah. jilted romantic lead. He's also playing a leader of the community. He's also playing the underdog. He's the guy that you're you're supposed to be uh, sympathizing with, right. you know. And any one of those, if you tip it the wrong way, it could be a really annoying performance. No, it's a wonderful right. performance, and I like the way though uh, when it's the way that he intonates certain things. You know, he'll be like, "Well, I ain't leaving," you know, and <laughs> and that little drawl he's got, and I love. 
I, I really like his performance. And, and it had been a while since I've seen Pale Rider, and he's part of what I really remember from the movie. And it's really interesting. The reason I was bringing up Q, the winged serpent, outside of the fact that I think it's a movie worth watching, we should do it on the show very soon, uh, is because you have this kind of method performance in Q, and now he brings that into like Pale Rider, <laughs> which is great. You know, he brings it from the horror into the Western, uh-huh. which I think is really cool. And I know he had quite a bit of respect as an actor, and I'm wondering now, this is just coming to me, if Eastwood wasn't up one night like, all right, Q, all right. <laughs> We got to get that guy. <laughs> but uh, I, I think he's, I think he's, he's great. Uh, Carrie Snodgrass uh, is is the woman that he's in love with, and Carrie Snodgrass, uh, she left us way too early back in, I think it was two thousand four. She passed away. Oh man! And uh, she was an Academy Award nominee. Uh, she's an actress I've seen in a lot of stuff. I couldn't tell you what I've seen her in. She, she like pops up. Uh, every that's now how and I then. felt when I saw her face. I felt like yeah. she looked familiar. She was really great in the X Files episode that she was in when uh, her daughter had gotten abducted mm-hmm. by aliens. She's really great in that. And uh, I'm not. Please don't think of this as disparaging against her, but she looks uh, very kind of leathery in this movie. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, she looks like she's been living out in this area. She looks like, you know, she was living in this right. frontier, you know, uh, this hard, this, this hard life. And, um, but she's got those beautiful eyes that like, yeah, that just mm-hmm. come out of her and this wonderful sense of decency of, yeah. with this woman. And, uh, and again, she felt very real. As she, this- this, you know, I don't know. Just everybody in an everybody. Eastwood movie will feel real. They do. They all, they all feel real because that's he demands that. Yeah. You know, um, not that he demands it, but that's what he he cast that. And she and Moriarty are wonderful together, and she and Eastwood are really wonderful together. And she has this really beautiful scene with him where where she she's attracted to the preacher character played by Eastwood, and she's made the decision that she's going to marry Moriarty's character. And she kisses him. And I love the fact that it's not this salacious moment. She goes, I'm going to basically it's like, I just got to know. Yeah. Because she says she didn't want to, to wonder. Yeah. Wake up at night wondering. And she gives him a kiss. And it's just kind of like, OK, got that out the way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it again, she was really excellent. Check out its first season. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But uh, it, her, her daughter gets abducted mm-hmm. by aliens. She's very good in that. Um I think maybe my favorite performance in here is Sydney Penny uh, yeah. as Megan. She plays uh, Carrie Snodgrass's daughter. She's the one that kind of gets this whole thing started with the prayer to the preacher, and that's mm-hmm. where the Shane comparisons come in with the with the relationship Shane has in that movie with a with a young boy. Well, preacher has this relationship with the young girl here. The young girl's. Uh, 12, 13, 13. She is fourteen. Fourteen, she going on fifteen. Fifteen. That's right. Coming up. That's right. Sydney Penny is lovely in this movie. What a lovely, lovely young girl. She's still lovely. I looked her up and she's still acting every now and then. And Eastwood apparently really, really liked her and uh, took her under his wing. And I hear they're still friends. So, which I think, yeah, like, I like that. They're worse people, I guess, to have as a friend. But uh, Sydney Penny, uh, that performance as Megan is really, really well done. There's the attempted, uh, uh, sexual assault on her and you hate to see that and of course you know that just pisses preacher off oh, but uh, yes. <laughs> what, what i love about the movie there's a relationship with her and the preacher and she's really into him and wants to marry him and all this and i love the way that it's, it's handled so 
effortlessly mm-hmm. and, and there's n- nothing inappropriate about right. it at all. Yeah. I like the way he handles that. You know, I feel like, I feel like he handles it in a way, I don't know. It's like this, it doesn't feel like her father figure kind of talking down at her, but yeah. I don't know. It just, yeah, you get what I'm trying to say. He, 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 he treats her as a, as a woman. Right. While still letting her remain a child. Right. There you go. Keeping her innocence. Right. Yeah. And, and there's nothing creepy about it at all. No. Nothing at all. It's really it's it's a it's a wonderful performance and I love the relationship. Uh you got Chris Penn, Richard Dysert, Charles Hallahan, the villains in this piece. Uh all of them just wonderful. Chris Penn especially is mm-hmm. as, as um the younger LaHood. And uh Clint Eastwood would direct his brother Sean to an Oscar for Mystic River and uh, back in 2003. Uh, love the villains. Richard Dysart, you know, is great as LaHood. But uh, for me, it's uh, Stockburn. Oh, yeah. John Maxwell <laughs> is Stockburn. I love this guy's look, that voice. Oh, wow. uh, he was also in The Outlaw of Josie Wales with Clint. Clint would work with a lot of the same people. You know, like we're talking yeah. about the old studio system. Clint had mm-hmm. his stock players that he liked, and uh, he'd work with them over and over and over again. They'll You'll see them, familiar faces all through his filmography uh but he is absolutely wonderful and he kind of really contributes to the mythos of this ghost thing Mm -hmm. because he had some dealings with uh the preacher and he may be the guy who killed him if he's (laughs) dead we haven't talked about the preacher let's talk about let's talk about the preacher (laughs) how have we not let's talk about Clint Eastwood in both of these movies really what do you think of the of the preacher I just it's so hard not to love him you know yeah. Again, I said it earlier. He feels so real. I feel like I don't know. He just while being mythic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like he just he's not even Clint Eastwood anymore. He's whoever he's playing. That's right. Who he is. He takes over this whole persona, and it's so believable. And there seems to be there was there was at one time a knock that he had no range. And I and I I remember, you know, when I was really getting into the films, I was going, well, are they watching because. This character that he plays here in in Pale Rider is completely different from the character he plays in High Plains Drifter. They are right. completely different in temperament. Completely mm-hmm. different. The even the physicality is different yeah. between the two guys. If you watch him in Dirty Harry and watch him in Pale Rider, watch him even in like let's go Pale Rider to like Unforgiven. They are completely different performances. Mm-hmm. They are they are. Uh, but they're not actorly performances. No. They're not showy performances. I don't all. think that's who he is. That's I not, that's so not who he is. But um, I, I love these characters. I, I and do. I love these characters. Now, we said at the outset that these are not horror movies. They're they're more ghost stories. So mm-hmm. what do you think about them as ghost stories before we take a break? Oh, I'm I, I'm on board that these are complete, com- you know, obviously he's a ghost in both of them. And it's I think it's really cool that there's that kind of mix in with the Western. I feel like it just kind of yeah. adds a little something yeah, to it. And it's totally. so cool. Totally. Uh, There's like this mystery element that, you know, yeah. pulls you in even more. Yeah. And, and I love that the movie doesn't hinge on it. Right. It's, it's a really sexy part yeah, of the exactly. makeup of the movie. And I think they're both great Westerns on top of it. And exactly. Pale Rider, if, if you're, if you're not into Westerns, maybe you want to get into the Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bell Rider is a really great place to start because if you like horror movies, if you're listening to this show, I'm assuming that you like horror movies. Uh, it's a great place to start because it does have that nice supernatural element mm-hmm. to it. And it's an extremely well done Western, kind of a classic Western. Now, if you want to dive headfirst into weird 
<laughs> go with High Plains Drifter if you've not seen it. Uh, and, I, and I highly recommend all of Eastwood's filmography. Yeah, and you know, we, we talked about on the way, uh, the way over together how these movies, they have violence, but he, he does it so well where it's not yeah. just there just to be there. The violence is not exploitive. No. The violence, as we said, his worldview that we were talking about, and I think that worldview holds up here at Pale Rider. These, mm-hmm. these guys, the, 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 the corporate men, and again, we played the clip with tin bears, mm-hmm. with governments and corporations. They don't, their word doesn't hold. Men must come together. So right. these people are just being complete dicks to these people. Mm-hmm. These people have not done anything to them. That, right. that also ties in with the idea of they don't care about people like me and you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it. They don't even care about dogs. You know, they shoot the dog. Oh, it's awful. I think that was the worst part oh, of was. me. That was. Not the dog. And, um, <laughs> but I think, I think it really ties into his worldview and the violence in his films. And I'm even thinking about like Dirty Harry here, you know, not exploitive. Right. It's all in character of the film. Exactly. It's all in character of the film. You, you, well, you talked about people like if they've never seen a western. I feel like most people they think western. You're thinking of a lot of gun violence. Shoot them up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I feel like he just does it. It's so well done here, where it's not over the top, and it's just on and on and on. Right. It's done so nicely. It, it really, it really is. Uh, I want to make a final note. We talked about two guys uh, tonight. We talked about Sergio Leone, mm-hmm. who directed. Clint in those great Italian westerns, uh, fistful of dollars for a few dollars more in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Don Siegel, who directed him several times, Dirty Harry, Coogan's Bluff, uh, Escape from Alcatraz. There's so many movies they did together. And of course, then he cast him and play Misty for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and, and let me know what you think about this. I feel like High Plains Drifter is kind of the tip of the cap to Sergio Leone mm-hmm. and pale rider is kind of a tip of the cap to Don Siegel. I feel like yeah. you can feel both of his mentors in these movies and his award-winning picture in 1992 unforgiven. He did indeed dedicate that picture to Don and Sergio. So nice. he knew, he knew where his bread was buttered. Oh yeah. You know, these yeah. are the two guys he, he, he learned from. I was talking with a friend of mine this week and we were talking about Eastwood and uh, he's a huge Eastwood. I think everybody kind of likes most him. People, yeah. Most people just like him, you know, yeah, for the most part. And um, I I believe this. Any list of the ten greatest directors of all time, I'm talking all time. If Clint's not on that list, you might want to rethink the list <laughs> because there there are so many wonderful facets to his directing, and I, know. I feel like he he tackles some big subjects and he does it in in a, as I said that that kind of non uh, pompous way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a it's not showy, but you know, but the guys who are the guys really love and respect this guy and and yeah. know that he's an artist of the highest caliber and and. Uh, if you're not intimately familiar with his filmography, watch Play Misty for me. If you want to get into the westerns, if you're not into those, High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider, you, you could, you know, they're worse places to start. And even watch Escape from Alcatraz. That is one of my all-time favorite it's movies. It's a great movie. I love yeah. that movie. It's a great movie. Uh, we're going to take a very short break. Before we do, I have a, a quick funny story. Uh, a friend of mine, his brother won uh, a couple of national championships at LSU playing for the baseball team and back in the 90s when he was playing at LSU he was on a flight coming back from somewhere I don't know uh, if it was from Omaha or somewhere else but uh anyway they were they were on on a flight coming back and Richard Kyle 
Keel, who played uh, Jaws in the James Bond movies and played Bump in this movie, the big, big mm. guy. And uh, you might remember him, too, from uh, Happy Gilmore. He was in the Adam Sandler movie, Happy mm. Gilmore. And by all accounts, he was an extremely nice, nice, gentle man. You know, very yeah. gentle man. Uh, they were on a flight with him coming back from wherever. And I have it on good authority that the dude was as big as you think he <laughs> is. You think he is. <laughs> Patrick told me he was, oh, he's like, he was huge. <laughs> just everything about him was just huge. Oh, my goodness. Big man. And they said he was very nice. Very, very nice. So uh, that's awesome. I always, always get tickled when I see him in anything. Like, cause he's, <laughs> he's, he's long been one of my favorites. Uh, I love him. Well, he's one of the great faces, right? One of the yes. great faces. <laughs> he said he was absolutely wonderful. That's so. awesome. Yeah, he's another one. He left us. He left us, I think, a little too early. Yeah, I'll leave us too early. Mm-hmm. I'll leave us too early. So, all right. Well, we are going to take a very short break. This is a news break, so make sure to stay tuned for all of the fake news not fit to print. I am Dan. And I am Faith. And we'll see you on the other side. underdog boxer Rocky Balboa recently gave undefeated heavyweight champion Apollo Creed all he could handle and then some in a stunning exhibition of guts and stamina never before seen in the history of the ring Balboa went the distance with Creed making it through all 15 rounds of their champion bout after the fight Creed said ain't gonna be no rematch while Balboa said Balboa was last seen in the company of a mousy girl who works in a pet shop and two turtles Search and rescue teams are feverishly looking for the SS Minnow, recently lost at sea while on a three-hour tour. We don't have any details at the moment, but from what we've been able to put together, it sounds like the first mate was a mighty sailing man. The skipper was brave and sure. On board the tiny vessel were the millionaire and his wife, the movie star, the professor, and Marianne. Faith, this begs the question, what were the millionaire and the movie star doing on the Minnow? Shouldn't they have been on their yachts? At least they have a professor with them, so I'm sure if there's something wrong with the boat, he'll have it fixed in no time. Godspeed, Gilligan. We need to offer a correction on a story we just reported on. Boxer Rocky Balboa did not say (laughs) after his recent fight with Apollo Creed, but instead said, (laughs) We here at the Late Night Fright like to get things right. We're not the New York Times. Finally, Lottery Fever has gripped Cozy Corner with the new Mega Jackpot reaching 350 Million? No, just dollars. That's a lot of pennies. Here with your Mega Jackpot numbers is legendary writer-director and our featured star this evening, Clint Eastwood. We are indeed honored. Here you go.
lucky numbers are 84, 23, 11, 78, and 99. What a load of shit. Thank you, Clint. Faith, did you win? No, did you? No. Looks like we got to finish the show. That is the news. Stay tuned for our final scores and a preview of next week's show. Welcome back to the Late Night Fright, right here on WKMF, Cozy Corner Public Radio. We did not win the lottery, so it looks like we're going to be doing this show indefinitely. That's <laughs> <laughs> sad that $350 would have gotten us. I, I know. And thanks to Clint Eastwood for being so gracious to read those numbers yes, thank for you. us. He sounded very bored with them. <laughs> he was indeed the star of the evening, the man of the hour. Uh, High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider, the two movies we did tonight. We said we were only going to do overall film for these two movies tonight, and we were going to award them Clint Squints. <laughs> Which is perfect. Really is. I think he's the <laughs> squintiest movie star we've we've had. I think so. Squintiness. Is that a word? It needs to be. I mean, well, if not, you just created it. I did. <laughs> That's you. right. All right, Faith, uh, how did you score High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider? I gave both a four. I also gave both a four, and that's uh, not biased because I love the guy who put these together. I just think they're that good. They really are. They really are. And uh, I highly recommend both of these movies. And as I've, I've said this evening, his entire filmography, watch all of those movies. Uh, it's it's really worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is a, this is a true artist. True artist. What I love about his artistry, and I love artists like this, is where they are. They're, they're the real deal. They don't announce it. Right. You know? Yeah. There's so much happening under the surface. I love it. Mm-hmm. I really, I really enjoy it. I've mentioned his filmography a lot tonight. I asked a lot of people this question. I asked a lot of people this question getting ready to do this show. What is your favorite Clint Eastwood movie? And let me tell you something. The looks I got and the looks were, they'd look off and go, oh, man, like... Uh, because you can't the just look name. I'm about to give you. <laughs> you can't name just one. You know, it's hard to name just one. And my friend Cade said, maybe you got to break it up by genre or by eras of the career kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know if that does it justice. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, Faith, I'm going to ask you uh, if not your favorite Eastwood movie, it's okay if you name a couple. Oh, man. I know you love Escape from Alcatraz. I do. I and Play Misty for me. I love Play Misty. Uh, Pill Rider became a favorite, you know, watching this. Yeah. Even High Plains Drifter. I mean, yeah. it's hard. I am very partial to the outlaw Josie Wales. I'm also very partial to Unforgiven, his big Oscar winner. Uh, yeah, it's a hard question. Uh, but I would like to recommend to everyone out there, one of my personal favorites is actually his favorite movie uh, that he's done. He's on record. 1980s Bronco Billy. About a Wild West show. Okay. And it's amazing. If you've ever felt like an outsider in your life, Bronco Billy 
that's the movie. I don't know if I've you. seen it's, that it's, one. It kind of harkens back to the classic 30s and 40s screwball comedies and has a lot to say about being on the outside, kind of feeling like an outsider. Right. And he said everything he's ever wanted to say is in that movie, and, and you can you can see it. But I also really love Dirty Harry. <laughs> <laughs> how could you not? I know. How could uh, I forget Dirty Harry? I love the Dollars trilogy. It, it, there's so many. There's so many. But uh, Bronco Billy, like it, I think that to me is it, it, that's a special movie. I think that's the most special. But there's so many. But uh, anyway, if you'd it's like tough. to let us know what your favorite Clint Eastwood movie is, you can. You can reach us at Late Night Fright Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you about your favorite Clint Eastwood movie or just your favorite movie in general. We want to thank each and every one of you out there for listening. We hope that wherever you are, you are happy, you're healthy, you're safe, you're taking your vitamins, and uh, go ahead and get into that filmography and our back catalog. I made a few shameless plugs for it You tonight. did. <laughs> Next week's show, uh, we spotlighted, spotlit, spotlighted. Spot, what's, what's, what's the rule on that? I don't know. We put the spotlight on a great director tonight, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Next week, we're going to put the spotlight on another great director, another guy who should always be on the top 10 greatest directors list, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock in his 1963 film, The Birds, starring Tippi Hedren. Uh, who else? Jessica Tandy's in it. Uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright from Alien is also yep. in the film. It has been a long time since I've seen this. So uh, go ahead and give you your homework for the week. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. And the week after that, very happy to say, we're going to be talking about 1998's Robert Rodriguez film, The Faculty. Ooh, Ooh I have not seen that one. Okay. So I'm excited it's gonna to be do fun. that. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited to do the uh, birds for sure. It's been on my list. Nice. While, and it's I a, haven't seen it in a while myself. The Faculty is a nice throwback to those 50s sci-fi teen movies like The Blob and things like that. So it's good. I think we got two good weeks of movies coming up. So thank you all again for tuning in. Thank you for letting us drone on in your ears. As I said, you can drone back at late night fright podcast at gmail.com. Talking about movies is fun. It's even more fun to do it with a friend. So call up a friend, watch a movie together and then talk about it. And then tell us about it. Then tell us about (laughs) it. There you go. Clint Eastwood, there are worse ways to spend your time. Yes, there is. Very quickly before we close up shop, do you, does your estimation of him just keep growing the more you watch of his stuff? Yeah, it, it does. It, it, what's so funny about him to me is that I feel like I feel like I'm learning more about who he is as an actual person because I feel like for a long time. I had, an enigma I to had, it. Yeah, I had this like thought yeah. that he was rough and tough like all these characters he plays, but I feel like there's just so many sides to him and. Yeah. I feel like you really discover that watching more of his films. And I think the more you understand or the more you see and appreciate and understand that softer side to him, everything else comes better into focus. There's so many facets to this guy. And it's so unfair to say that he's this macho figure. He's so much more than that. So much more than that. There's a lot of depth to him. There's a lot of depth to his movies and, uh, 90, 90, gonna be 91 and has a movie coming out and he's walking and talking and hasn't lost any of his faculties, be they physical or mental. And I hope he's with us for another 91 years. I know that's not gonna happen, but I hope, I hope, I hope the dude makes it well past 100. Yeah. And with his lifestyle, I think he can. I was gonna say, I know his dad passed early, what, like 64. So I know he, 
yeah. tries to live a healthy lifestyle and, and it shows i mean yeah and uh his son scott seems like he's a good dude mm-hmm. too uh, his daughter allison seems like she's yeah they seem very well adjusted mm-hmm. people and not that normal hollywood right crowd yeah you know and I'm ashamed I didn't mention earlier that Clint Eastwood was very good friends with Don Rickles. I think that's funny. <laughs> so, Well, Faith, it seems like it's that time. Yes. It seems like it's time to wrap up the show. If we snap our fingers, will the magic happen? We didn't have to. We didn't even have to. It's like wow. magic. You just said snap fingers and it came on. <laughs> right? We don't even have to do the action anymore. We, we didn't even have to use the magic of editing tonight. Right? Amazing. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. Really means a lot to us. Stay safe out there. The world is crazy right now. Yes, keep it your is. keep your head and your wits about <laughs> you. In the words of the great Don Cornelius, who hosted Soul Train for all those years, be good to yourself and be good to your neighbor. Faith, take us home. May your coffin be cozy and your sarcophagus warm. May the light of the moon keep you safe from harm. Be you vampire, spook, specter, or beast. Always remember. Keep Keep your your monster monster on a leash. leash. The birds is up next. We will see you on the other side.